Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Good morning, you brave and hearty souls. It's great to be back with you. When I was the district executive in Mass Bay, this was one of my favorite churches to visit. You're always such joyful people in worship, and it's great to see you. And thank you so much for the birthday greetings. And I don't think it's just because it's my birthday, but I've been thinking a lot about change lately. I'm one of these people that have always prided myself on my embrace of change. I love new ideas, new gadgets, new ways of doing things, new articles that I inflict upon every person that knows me. (laughs) Everyone who works with me or lives with me dreads that day when I run into the door with some new thing that they just must engage in with me. I had to move recently and I went back and calculated how many times I have moved in my adult life. It turns out to be 28 times. Since I just turned 51, you can do the math. It's about 12 and a half months or so every every 12 and a half months, pretty bad. That's a lot of moving trucks and pizza, let me tell you. So given this basic orientation that I bring to life, I used to simply not understand people who resist change. Change is the nature of life, I would think. And it certainly keeps life interesting. But I've learned to look at my predilection for change differently recently. I've had to admit that while I may be adept at making changes, may it, while it may be fairly easy for me to let go of one trapeze bar and grab onto another in action, I'm actually not very good at living in transition. What I mean by that is I've begun to see the ways in which my constant stream of changes can be as much an avoidance of the implications and meanings of change as can the stubborn resistance to change. Everyone has their own pattern of dealing with change in their lives, and as a minister, I've seen many varieties, and I have yet to meet someone who is perfect at making meaning of change. We all have our challenges around it. And the same is true of our congregations and our institutions, not just individuals. Churches that undergo many rapid changes have as much difficulty as those that enjoy relatively long periods of stability and then suddenly have to cope with change. Communities have difficulty making meaning of change every bit as much as individuals do, sometimes more so because communities are collections of people 
all with different attitudes toward change. Can I get an amen? amen. What's interesting to me about our difficulty with change, whether individually or institutionally, is it doesn't seem to matter very much whether or not we choose the change that we're engaged in. Change is challenging to us even when we're happy about the changes that we have gladly taken upon ourselves just as much as it is challenging to us when change is imposed on us from outside. Think about a time when you have made a change that you thought was going to make your life so much better. When you took that new job or bought that new home, when you had a new baby, when you engaged in a new relationship. As joyful as those moments can be, I'd be willing to bet that even amidst the joy of that chosen change, you felt strangely unsure of yourself, uncomfortable, perhaps a bit even depressed after all the excitement was over. Why would this be? You may be tired of hearing the old truism that the only thing that is certain is change. I certainly get tired of it because it doesn't necessarily help us deal with the difficulty of actually engaging with change. At some level, we know intellectually that whatever we care about must, in fact, change to stay vital. And we may be aware that those things that we most value, that we most want to hold on to, actually came about because of a change. Yet we still struggle with it at so many levels. I recently read an article from the online magazine Fast Company, which was entitled Change or Die. Kind of a dire title, isn't it? But what they noted in this article was a study about people who um, have been diagnosed with severe heart disease when confronted with the absolute necessity to change their lifestyle, 90% of the people in this study, 90% knowing that their lifestyle will necessarily make them die, refuse to change. 90%. There's actually something that does help people change, even when they're confronted with something so dire. And I'm going to get to that later, which is going to hopefully keep you listening. But a part of what makes this so challenging for us is that every change, every change, even those that we positively choose, involves an ending, involves something that we must let go of. There's a very aptly named author of a book about transitions. His name is William Bridges. I don't think he changed his name or chose this study because of his, his, title, his name, but you know, it's great. You know that he must live it. William Bridges says that it is because we have a hard time understanding how to plumb the changes in our lives for a deeper sense of meaning and purpose. 
Where we most often get stuck with changes is when we're asking ourselves questions like, why is this happening to me? Or why can't I just get on with my life? Or why can't I move on? Instead, Bridges asks us to wonder, what can I learn about myself in the process of this change? What is so important to me about the things that I must let go of? What am I seeking in the change that I must take up? What do I have to learn? Or in the case of religious communities, what can we learn about what is most important to this congregation? Or even more profoundly, what can we learn about Unitarian Universalism and what do we have to offer at this moment of profound change? I offer this prelude about change because as a person who serves the Unitarian Universalist Association, I am all too aware of not just changes that we are struggling with, but indeed we're encountering tectonic shifts in our culture that will require us as faithful people to change at all levels of our association. We've all been hearing much recently about the rise of the nuns, those who claim no religious affiliation but may still consider themselves spiritual. Now here's a generation check. How many of you heard rise of the nuns and thought that was Sally Fields resurrecting her TV career? Yeah, yeah. We keep talking about the great opportunity there is for us to appeal to the people in this category for Unitarian Universalists embrace such a spectrum of religious perspectives that those who are seeking to live a spiritual life unencumbered by dogma ought to find a ready home for us. The challenge in reaching out to these folks, however, is that we have to actually reach out to folks (laughs) in this category. Because people aren't going to automatically know about us. They're not going to know that this wonderful community exists. They aren't going to understand the connection between their spiritual drives and what you have to offer until we make that connection known to them. Congregations have to learn how to not only receive people, but to send people out into the community in ways that you know so well and that you do so well. Even your religious education program this morning is reaching out to the surrounding community in profound ways. Those actions and those partnerships embody the message of Unitarian Universalism. And we have to create an experience in our congregations that helps people explore those spiritual longings. I don't think anybody actually joins a church so that they can be put on a committee. (laughs) And yet we do so because it's an important cause, an institution that we believe in. But people are less and less likely and interested in doing the kinds of day-to-day institutional maintenance things that our congregations often require. 
And it's not because they're not committed. It's not because they don't want to contribute. It's because they want to see the connection between what they're doing, what they're contributing, and how that actually fulfills the mission and purpose of the congregation. How that, that connection is made to their spiritual life so that it doesn't just feel like busy work, it doesn't just feel like administrative work. They can actually see the purpose we serve in the world. Congregations are now competing with an entirely different way of creating community. We have to make this experience in a congregation so profound that it will compete with Facebook. It's pretty hard to do. And it's not just that people are interested in checking status. It's not just that people are interested in posting little notes about what they're doing with their day. What they're finding, not just through Facebook, but through so many other internet capacities, is an ability to connect deeply with others in a way that we always used to assume could only happen in person. A friend of mine just lost her father recently, and her family, like so many of our families, is spread out all across the country and they had to wait several weeks before they could hold the service for him. But what they did in the meantime was to create a group text. All of the family members started texting stories of her father to one another. And they were able to share these profound memories of him in a way that they couldn't possibly have done all together for the service. And in fact, if they had been all together, in that living room or in that kitchen trying to take care of all the details of the service, they wouldn't have, have had time. They wouldn't have had the space. And there were so many loving stories told about this man through this new technology. It can be a profound connection for people. That's just one of the multitude of changes that are happening in our world that, have, that we have chosen and that have chosen us that is going to force us to change the way we understand our spiritual lives and change the way that we create community. I believe we're going through a period that is dramatic in its level of change as the Great Awakening of two centuries ago, a period of rapid change, of deep awareness, of potential for destruction as well as transformative creation. This kind of period in which we live right now requires us not to just change or not to just add new activities, not to just adjust. It's going to require us to innovate, to forge new pathways, to create new connections. If this is starting to scare you as a congregation, imagine how intimidating it is, to, it is to us at the Unitarian Universalist Association to figure out how to begin to shift the ship of state, so to speak. So if there is ever a time to develop our change muscles, this is it. But here's the good news. You don't have to do it alone. 
There's some models of history that we can look at as well as signs of hope in the future. I've recently been reading a book about Joseph Priestley, the amazing 18th century British Unitarian minister, social scientist, and inventor. The book by Stephen Johnson is called The Invention of Air, because Priestley, in fact, invented air, discovered oxygen, was able to name that thing that existed already in front of us that we live in the midst of all the time, and nobody had been able to articulate and to isolate its presence until Priestley. But it turns out that what was so remarkable about Priestley was not that he was such a brilliant scientist, which he was, and not just that he was able to integrate his understanding of religion and science and examination of, of the world together, which he was, but he did it in the context of a community. He was a part of a group called the Honest Whigs, who met regularly at a coffee shop in London, a group that included such luminaries as Ben Franklin. Can you imagine sitting around a table with Ben Franklin, Joseph Priestley? One of the things that, that um, Stephen Johnson notes is that perhaps one of the reasons this was such an incredible period of innovation is that the British recently discovered coffee. And given that most people survived on ale all the time, can you imagine injecting coffee into that system all of a sudden? Oh my goodness. But there is another source of their innovation. There is another spark for their innovation. And that source was one another. They were able to come together and share ideas and argue about issues and contribute to each other's thoughts. Their letters from that time show all the ways in which they built on each other's new discoveries. None of them could have done it alone. It was actually Franklin who helped analyze the meaning of one of Priestley's discoveries for him. I believe that we're at a similar point in history a point in history which demands innovation, but which also tells us we cannot do it alone. When we have an opportunity to look to one another to collaborate in building a new world of love and peace and justice. Because while intimidating and overwhelming as it may seem, new technologies and new ways of living are going to allow people to participate to contribute, to innovate in ways that were never before accessible to us. Clay Shirky wrote a wonderful book called Cognitive Surplus, in which he talks about the opportunities that the internet and social media provide for people to not just engage with one another socially, but to engage with one another for social justice. And he tells this great story about when the Koreans, um, the South Koreans, had banned beef a number of years ago. Anybody remember this when they decided that because of mad cow disease, they were not going to import beef into their country? So they declared a moratorium on all beef imports. Well, then they elected a new premier who decided that he would just lift this ban. Didn't tell anybody why did not explain to people why he thought that that would be safe, 
did not pay, make people feel comfortable in that change. And so there were actually mass riots, mass riots, hundreds of thousands of people showing up in the town center complaining and rioting about this change. Guess what the number one demographic of that group of protesters was? Anybody? Fourteen-year-old girls. Fourteen-year-old girls who discovered this issue on their favorite boy band website. And they were able to show up for this in a second because they learned about it in a second and they learned about it in the context of a community they trusted. Even if those, that community they trusted was hundreds of thousands of people that shared the same love of the same boy band. It was a community to them that they trusted. And then when the police showed up to try to stop the protests, what are they gonna do in the face of 14-year-old girls? Imagine how effective such a protest would be. So what's so hopeful and remarkable to me in hearing stories like this is that there are so many new opportunities for people to gain access and to communicate and to collaborate and to participate in a way that we never had before. All of those people who are still stuck at home in snowbound homes are going to have a way that they can participate in life in a way that they couldn't have before. What makes me so excited about this is that it reinforces a core Unitarian Universalist principle, which is that our hope for the future lies within all of us, not just one leader, not just a perfect, charismatic leader that will take us some new direction, not a single model that offers one answer for this time and all time. No, it is a collective. It is a community that can participate and build together, a collaboration of people seeking and finding together a way to live more fully, love more deeply, accept more freely, give more generously. As Thich Nhat Hanh said, it is possible that the next Buddha will not take the form of an individual. The next Buddha may take the form of a community. There's a great truth that we're trying to learn in this as an association. More and more, those of us at 25 Beacon, our headquarters, realize that work is not ours to do over there. It is your work to do here and out there and in so many other places around the world. You do not require so much experts as you do partners that support you in doing the work that you do so well. We can be the source of connections pointing you to other sources of inspiration and support that are amongst you, highlighting your good and generous work. You are the greatest strength of our association. Our member congregations and our dedicated and faithful souls who bring both their gifts and their challenges together to inspire and to support 
one another. So this is the point at which I get to return to my earlier story about change or die and give you the hopeful message. It turns out the one thing that really made a difference to people in this circumstance was community. People who were able to come together in support groups who coached and supported one another, their rate of survival tripled tripled. That 10% of people who were willing to be with one another in their vulnerability, to support one another in their change, made their survival so much more likely. Because they didn't need more information about what was harming them, they needed hope and courage to choose life. This is why we talk about this in the context of spiritual community. Because a transformational process which asks us to let go of the old and embrace something completely new and different requires enormous faith, courage, and strength. It's faith in the capacity of ourselves, in the capacity of others, that allows us to give and receive of the abundant gifts of this world. The beauty of religious community is that here is where we get to learn and grow and figure out how to navigate our changes, not as perfect people, not as isolated people, but as a community that has love at its core. What holds us together is faith. And what holds our faith is community in its many forms. Let this be a place that honors both heritage and innovation that sends and receives that nurtures your spirit in the midst of change holds you through your transitions and encourages your transformation amen <laughs>